Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, uh, we have a returning guest on the show. Uh, he's been on a couple times before, but it's, I think it's been about uh, over a year since the last time. Philippe Lemonex. That's not actually how you say his name, but I've given up on uh, actually trying to say it right. Uh, Philippe is a, uh, as you may recall, he's a PhD student in philosophy at Cornell. He also blogs at The War on Science, uh, which is a blog for the center, a blog associated with the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. Uh, we just, if you longtime listeners may recall that our the last episode that we did was with uh, Richard Hanania, also of CSPI. So welcome back, Philippe. Thanks. Happy to be here. We've had you on the show twice before, once to talk about conspiracy theories, and then the next time to talk about COVID. And we thought uh, it would be good to have you back on because now all your work is like on the intersection of conspiracy theories and COVID, right? So you recently, uh, I, I think the, your latest, you've been writing a lot on this topic, a, a very, a uh, lot of pro- provocative takes. Your most recent one, I would say, is basically COVID is about to be over. I guess uh, how would you how would you sum up your? your I, I wouldn't say it's about to be over, uh, because but basically the the my argument is that uh, it's going to become endemic, which is to say that eventually, uh, at some point, you know, everyone or almost everyone will have some immunity against it, whether it's induced by vaccination or natural infection. And at this point, we'll reach a stage uh, which, you know, in the epidemiological literature is called uh, an endemic equilibrium. Uh, and uh, at this stage, the virus will not, it's not going anywhere. You know, it's going to continue to circulate. Right. But when we reach that point, when we reach that equilibrium, it will make far less damage. It will do far, far less damage than it's done during the pandemic phase. So, you know, we're... Uh, the pandemic phase is on the way up, but different countries are at very different uh, stages, you know. So it's going to be it's going to be faster in some places and other, especially you know, like places that where the vaccination rate is very high, are going to get to that place faster than the others. But eventually, everybody in the world, including the so-called zero COVID countries like New Zealand and Australia, will get there, and uh, you know. Again, there are different ways of getting there. But once you get there, once you reach that stage, my point is that the virus will be far less dangerous. And and I don't say that because I think that the virus is going to evolve to become less virulent, because that's that's an idea that you hear a lot. Uh, a lot of people think that viruses necessarily evolve to become more virulent, but that's actually a myth, uh, which is not to say that it doesn't sometimes happen. But the point is that... Uh, there's nothing necessary about it, and, and often it doesn't happen. And uh, so my argument is not premised on this idea, which I think is is uh, is mistaken. Rather, the idea is that once everybody has immunity, uh, even though the immunity is not perfect, so it's not going to. Uh, in particular, I'm arguing that protection against infection is uh, going to vain 
fairly rapidly over time. Uh, but um, but still, you know, there will be some protection against infection. Uh, it will reduce. So, so, you know, the damage, the amount of damage that the virus will do once we reach that endemic equilibrium will be will be much smaller than what we've seen today. In fact, we'll, I think we'll be, we'll be in a situation very similar to what was the case before the emergence of this virus for basically two reasons. The first reason is that uh, once everybody has immunity, the virus will not be able to spread as easily. So although it will still circulate, uh, the attack rates, that is the, the proportion of the population that's infected each year, is going to be much smaller after the pandemic phase. That's the first reason. The second reason is that uh, even people who are infected, uh, you know, once we've reached the endemic equilibrium, because they have some immunity, uh, this, these infections will typically be mild. So even when they're infected, uh, the, the, the probability that they develop a severe form of the illness will be much smaller. So when you combine the two factors, uh, the amount of damage that the virus will make, even if, if intrinsically the virus remains exactly the same, uh, the amount of damage that it will make, it will do, will be much smaller than what we've seen uh, so far during the pandemic. So basically my argument is that you shouldn't, you shouldn't look at what happened during the pandemic and extrapolate that this is what's going to happen as long as the virus is around, unless it somehow evolves to become less virulent. Uh, it's going to do much less damage eventually, even if the virus intrinsically remains just as virulent as it currently is. Yeah. And this, I assume, is uh, probably what happened with the Spanish flu, right? Because uh, the Spanish flu uh, in 1919 or uh, 1920 killed a whole bunch of people and then one question that I always had is, well, what happened to the Spanish flu? Because people stopped dying. And I guess I guess one explanation is, uh, well, once most everybody was exposed, you know, if you try and, if you try and get it twice or whatever, your body has some memory of that. And that's going to make it less deadly. Is that that's basically the idea there? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's that's basically what happened. I mean, you know, the, the H1N1 uh, influenza strain of the virus is basically a descendant of the, the, the virus that caused the, the, uh, the Spanish flu pandemic. Um, you know, so, so, and I think, you know, it happened, it probably happened, you know, a more relevant example, maybe, although less well known is the Russian flu from, uh, uh, early 18, I mean, started in 1889, I think. And then it, it, it went on for like a few years in the 1890s. And I say it's more relevant because although we can't be sure because we don't have any preserved samples uh, of uh, the, you know, well, that contains the virus, so we could actually verify this. Um, a lot of people think that this was actually another um, uh, human coronavirus that is no endemic in the population um, and typically only cause mild disease. But, you know, back in, at the end of the 19th century, it actually caused a pandemic that, that looked in many respects very similar to what we've seen with SARS-CoV-2 uh, you know, in 2020 and, and this year. Uh, and, you know, we, we have other, you know, there is other evidence of this. So, you know, the symptoms look very similar. Um, another thing is that if you, if you use like phylogenetic data and you, you try to use like molecular clocks to date uh, the emergence of the virus in human population, 
what you get, you know, is our estimates that typically are around the time of the Russian flu, the so-called Russian flu. So a lot of people think that this uh, was actually, uh, uh, I don't remember the name of that one. Um, uh, but anyway, one of the four endemic human coronaviruses. And, um, and you know, basically it did a lot of damage at the time, but then ev- eventually everybody was exposed and had some, gained some immunity or, you know, died. Uh, as a case may be. But uh, once this was the pandemic phase was over, everybody has some immunity. And then basically what happened is that people who had had, who had the primary infection uh, got reinfected every few years. So, you know, we, we have data that shows that with like the other human coronaviruses, it seems that uh, people get reinfected every few years. Uh, but those infections are typically mild because they've had a primary infection during their childhood where as with SARS-CoV-2, uh, uh, an infection is, is, is basically harmless in the overwhelming majority of cases. So people gain immunity during their, by being infected for the first time during their childhood. And then basically for the rest of their life, they keep getting reinfected because the virus continues to circulate. Uh, so they keep getting reinfected every few years until, you know, they get old and their immune system starts not working very well. And at this point, you know, even one of those other human coronaviruses can actually kill you. You know, it kills old people every year. Um, but that's, that's, and you know, and my, my prediction that the same thing is going to happen uh, with SARS-CoV-2. I mean, I say my prediction, but I, I'm not the only one who says that. Like a lot of people are saying that. But I've tried to explain, you know, in, in simple terms, the, the underlying logic, how you, why this was, is supposed to happen. Why is this probably going to happen? Why is this probably going to happen? Yeah, so... I think that that generally makes sense. One one question that I have is you, there are historically have been some uh, viruses. Smallpox might be a good example that it was endemic, uh, but you did periodically have, uh, you know, big, big like it would come back and kill a lot of people, even though it had been around for. I mean, I, I guess smallpox has probably been around for. Uh, I mean, since since the dawn of of human writing uh thousands and thousands of years so how how does that how does that fit in with what what, with what you're saying there well i think um i think the 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 difference is that smallpox uh hasn't been circulating like the the other human coronaviruses are or the flu or you know so that typically a community was smallpox free and then there was an outbreak and so my point is that most people did not have, in fact, immunity to smallpox because they hadn't been exposed to it. But those who were exposed to it, like they, you know, they, they wouldn't, they typically wouldn't die the second time around. They were exposed to, you know, when they were exposed to it again. So uh, with human coronaviruses or or the flu, it's it's different because those those things are constantly circulating. Like I was saying before, they've they've looked at you know a longitudinal longitudinal sample of people. And, and they tested them for uh, virus, human coronavirus at, at uh, you know, every year for like 30 years. I, mean, I think it was Illinois or uh, Michigan. I don't remember. Um, anyway, I think I linked to this study in the, in the piece. Uh, and when you do this, you see that, you know, they found that people were, were infected by uh, one of those coronavirus every, every few years, basically. So this isn't the same thing with smallpox. You know, people weren't infected every few years even prior to eradication, uh, like nothing's 
nothing suggests that this was the case. Um, right. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I think, right. Right. So, so if, if you, if you have, I guess if you have a few people every year who are getting infected, then uh, you're going to maintain your overall level of immunity in the population pretty high, as opposed to something like smallpox where it's zero, it comes through everybody who survives is immune. And then it's, more people are not getting infected every year. So as, as new people are born, that kind of drops off. It goes back, back, back down. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure why, you know, I mean, one, one reason might just be that smallpox is so much more virulent than, than those, uh, you know, coronaviruses. So they tend to kill their host uh, before, you know, they can spread it or, you know, because they kill their, because they're so dangerous uh, uh, outbreaks tend to be, you know, people, isolate better just because they're much more scared than you know they're with like a human coronavirus um i don't know exactly why but like it's it's clear that it, it wasn't you know at, it wasn't like of those human coronavirus or you know renoviruses and all the others uh you know it wasn't the case that people were infected every few years like a, a smallpox out, outbreak was a pretty rare and devastating event you know? right it wasn't constantly circulating I think the reason that this this topic interests me so much is we're in this phase right now, and at least in the United States, well, I mean, you see it certainly in New Zealand as well, where we're basically governing by decree, which, I mean, we're not running our normal, the way we would normally operate, a, you know, a constitutional democracy running through our legislature, then the executive branch and all this. And it's just like we're 18 months into the slow rolling crisis and we're just acting like there's no end in sight. And so we just have to just continually, well, it's, it's the, you know, you've got your local government is, is issuing one decree. Then you've got a governor who's issuing another decree that's contrary to the other decrees. And it's like we've, we've lost sight of, you know, we actually have a pretty decent system here in the United States. Uh, maybe we should let it get back to work rather than just, you know, acting as if this is just this. You know, we're almost like we're still in the same mindset we were 18 months ago. We just need two more weeks. You know, at some point, as you're talking about, uh, you know, the the disease becoming endemic, aren't we hopefully getting close to that point where we can start sort of letting government, you know, function or its normal dysfunction get get it back to normal rather than there's this race of one decree after another. Yes, I mean, that's, that's, that's one of the big reasons I wrote this essay is that I think that a lot of people are, are stuck in this mindset where, you know, the pandemic mindset where they think that what's been going on for the past year and a half or so, it's just going to keep being like that until the virus somehow disappears. Or, you know, if it doesn't disappear, it will, well, this is just going to be the new normal. And... And, you know, they, they haven't really, I think it's not even that they have false belief about, I mean, they do, they do have false belief about what's going to happen. But I also think that a lot of it is just they're not even thinking about the long term, you know, like, so they're not even thinking about the fact that whatever restrictions we're, or, you know, whatever uh, policies we implement uh, once, you know, the pandemic phase is over, uh and, you know, everyone has immunity or like almost everyone has immunity either through vaccination or natural infections. Um, whatever policy we implement, it has to be sustainable. But but people don't, you know, so people are saying, oh, the virus is circulating, you know, this is terrible. So we have to mask kids in school. I'm like, okay. I mean, but but do you want, 
like when are you going to stop you know when uh, because the virus if, if the criterion is that we're going to wear masks you know we're going to have kids wear masks in schools as long as the virus is circulating that's effectively what you're saying is that you want kids to keep wearing masks at school indefinitely because the virus is not going anywhere and so and you know it, it applies to what you were saying you know the way we're we are being governed this is not just in the US you know we, we see that in Europe too where uh, you know people have we have accepted uh, like um, to be governed in this extraordinary way I mean I'm, I'm using the word extraordinary in its etymology etymological sense here, like it's, it's out of the ordinary. It's, that's not the way our countries are normally run. And basically, people have accepted this because it was an emergency, etc. But um, those things, as you said, you know, they have a way of, of persisting. So people, you know, as long as we, if we don't think about the, the exit, uh, the end game, as you, you know, if you want, uh, People have a way of like, you know, you can continue to justify these things forever. So, you know, there, there has to be a point uh, at which you say, okay, no, it's, we have to accept that, uh, you know, the pandemic is on the, fa- on the way out. This thing is going to stay here. It's going to become endemic. We have to go back to being governed in the, governed in the, the way we used to. And, and, you know, I think that if you, if you try to think about like sensible criteria about when we should do this, I think it was like several months ago already that we should have done this. But 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 so but now it's even more clear that we should be doing this. And the problem is that I think that because people don't think enough about the end game, they don't think about enough about where we're going, and and whether the policies that they recommend right now are sustainable in the long run. We don't really have this conversation. At least we don't have it enough. And I think the sooner we have it, the better, because this is going to happen. And then there's nothing we can do that that will prevent this from happening. And I think uh, we have to worry about the long-term consequences of of, um, normalizing those extraordinary means of governing people. You know, like, like you say, this government by decree that's that's a worrisome thing, you know, and and uh, we wanna we wanna make sure that it doesn't stay that way, and and I think that this is gonna be a problem. Like, this is the thing that worries me the most, to be honest, because I see a lot of people who they seem to suffer from some kind of like post traumatic disorder, pandemic related post traumatic disorder. Maybe someone can make up an acronym. For this. <laughs> um, no, no, don't give them any more acronyms. <laughs> Um, so, and I think, you know, uh, you hear them talk or you read what they're saying. And, you know, I don't know how representative they are. Like, I don't know how many people out there are like this, but but there are many, you know. Like, I talk to people who have kids, like, they talk to other people who have kids. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I speak, I talk about kids in particular because I see a lot of people are freaked out. And they talk about, you know... They're like, no way we're opening schools again until, you know, my kid can be vaccinated or, you know, if, if they don't wear a mask in, in, at schools. And, like, and, you know, I think this is crazy. Like, there's been a huge failure in communication for, for people to believe that this thing is really dangerous, even for their kids, where it's clear that it's totally harmless uh, in the overwhelming majority of cases. 
And, you know, there's this constant propaganda. Like, you know, recently in France, there was, you know, there was uh, headlines about this newborn who was, you know, who they said died, be you know, because of COVID-19. But then when you actually look at the articles, you see that uh, it was a stillborn, you know, kid, you know, baby. And, and it's just that the mother had been infected. So the kid, when they tested him, he was stillborn, you know, but they just tested him. And he, you know, he was infected with COVID nineteen. That's that's not what killed the kid, you know. That's not what killed the baby. But but you have this constant propaganda because people, you know, governments and public health officials want people to get vaccinated. I want to get them vaccinated too. But I'm not. I don't think I'm not in favor of like using propaganda to to get people vaccinated. I mean, it, I'm not even sure it works to be honest. And uh, and also, I think in the in the long run, it always backfires. That actually ties in interesting because you just you just made a point that I that I made in a private conversation yesterday that the government officials and the CDC for all their failings they're what they're not doing I don't think and maybe this would be maybe you if you're looking at conspiracy theories maybe you see people talking about this but I don't for one minute believe that the CDC or any other government official is hiding any other effective treatment. And yet you have the, this rise, at least here in the, the, the southern part of the United States, a rise of, uh, I believe it's the uh, poisonings of Invermectin. Is that the right name of it? Ivermectin. Um, Ivermectin. So the cattle medication. And so it's like, I think these are probably the same people that are like refusing to get vaccinated, but they think that there's some other valid treatment that the, the government must just not be telling them about. But I think it's worth reiterating that for all their flaws, you've got the CDC that what they're really doing, apart from the fact that they want to exercise power and they like being in the limelight, they actually want everybody to get vaccinated. They're, they're, they don't have some hidden um, drive to keep, you know, valid medic, you know, valid remedies from people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is important because I hear that a lot too. I mean, I'm like, as a disclaimer, I haven't looked at the data on ivermectin or, you know, most of the other treatments. And so I have like no special like, competence to talk about this, but, but I have no doubt that, you know, the public health officials in general and the cities in particular, are not hiding effective treatments. Uh, you know, I, I do think that they like being in the limelight and, you know, they, they like having this kind of influence in society, et cetera, but I don't think they're hiding this stuff. Um, Anyway, I would say the same about politicians, you know, political decision makers, because I hear that a lot. You know, I mean, it's, you know, you hear that in the U.S., I'm in France, and I hear that a lot, too. You know, people are convinced that when Macron in France is, um, you know, this, has decided to create this health passport, you know, to go to restaurants, uh, you know, to go to take the train, etc., you have to show proof of vaccination or, or a negative test result that, you know, a recent negative test results. A lot of people in France say the same thing that you were just describing. You know, they're convinced that this is some evil plan to control population. And, and you know, I, what drives me nuts about this is that it's giving those people way too much credit. You know? I mean, yeah. they're not, you know, that's not at all what's happening. You know, it's, it's, they're just completely clueless. They really are. And, uh, and they're, they have no idea what to do, but they're constantly under the injunction to do something. So they do something, you know, like no matter how stupid or pointless, at least it shows that they're doing something and they're thinking, you know, I won't be criticized for not having done something, which is what they did at first, you know, when they were telling us that it was just like a little flu and it would just pass and you wouldn't even notice it was there and all that, that nonsense that they were saying back in February. Now the same people are 
pushing all those crazy policies. And but yeah, no, I, I don't think I, I don't buy this stuff at all. You know, I, I hear the same thing in France, and I read this stuff, you know, in the U.S. too. Uh, but you know what? What drives me nuts again is that I really think it gives people those people way too much credit. I don't think I don't think they're they have this sort of you know like in a way I would almost be reassured if they were capable of if, if of making those 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 plans you know because yeah it would show some kind of forward thinking you know, which which clearly they don't have yeah to be an evil genius you at least need to be smart right uh... yeah yeah I mean that's that's the thing and then the more I talk with like public health experts, like decision makers, politicians, you know, I, as I'm, as I get older, I, I meet more and more politicians and I realize that, you know, when I was younger, I had this idea that no, surely they're not as stupid as they seem to be. And like, they're more calculating and, and you know, there's a sense in which they're calculating, but they're definitely not thinking about the long term in general. Like it's extremely rare to find a politician who is capable and he's actually thinking about you know, the long term. And, and so, and it doesn't even make sense. I mean, you know, if you look at the, like this health pass in France, people are saying, oh, it's to, it's to control the population. But how is that helping the government? Like, right. explain me concretely. <laughs> right, right. How is that helping them to prevent people going to restaurants? Like what, what kind of evil goals are you achieving that serves their interest by doing that? You know, it's people who make these kind of claims and they don't even think about, What's the end game supposed to be? Because if they did, they would see that it makes absolutely no sense. You know, it's just like it's like they have. It's like as if you know those politicians have some kind of like preference for making people miserable, and I don't think they do. I think they have a preference for staying in power. I think they have a preference, you know, for gaining influence over policy and you know all sorts of petty things. But I, I don't think they have a preference for keeping people away from restaurant terraces in france you know just that makes no sense yeah so let's talk a little bit let's 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 talk say more negative stuff about public health you know uh yeah politicians okay so uh, politicians as a class uh they are i I think it's fair to say not the brightest bunch there was a uh a couple weeks ago there was a poll of uk members of parliament you might have seen where they asked them uh, if you flip a coin twice, what is the what is the odds that it will come up heads both times? Right, very very simple question. And of course, uh, half of the MPs that they asked got that wrong. Um, and so okay, so that you know, politicians not that bright. Uh, it's you could kind of understand why that might be the case. What are sort of the like structural factors that may not be you know, optimizing for intelligence there. But why, if I look at like the public health uh, community by and large, of course there are some exceptions, but as an institution, it tends, they tend to be, um, uh, you know, kind of vapid conformist, uh, not very smart uh, midwit, I believe is the term that gets used of someone, you know, who is, uh, smart enough to know what like the political line is, but not actually able to, uh, you know, use creative thinking in a in a unknown situation, which is what COVID is. Why? I mean, do you have any thoughts about uh, 
and you you know your uh, your blog is war on science, right? You're you're anti science, as you say. Like what 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 is wrong? What's gone wrong here? Why are why are people like that? Uh, so I think we need to distinguish between different kinds of experts here. Uh, I think virologists have done pretty well as long as they weren't talking about uh, policy. Uh, other than that, I mean, I have some serious qualms about some of the stuff they're saying about uh, the transmissibility of different variants, which I will talk about soon in, in another paper. Uh, but, you know, this is really stuff that epidemiologists are doing. So virologists talk about this, but, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they look at this to the... I, I don't think they're the main players here. Uh, if you look at, you know, there are all sorts of public health experts who I think, I would disagree, I think that they're actually quite stupid. Um, it's not just that they're... <laughs> not just midwit, they're, they're way down in Denver territory. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, I mean, no, they are midwits, you know. I'm not saying they're... I mean, you know, the average is very low. So if, if, you, if you go below that, that that's good. But, but, you know, still, that's, again, the average is pretty low. So what you call midwit, which, you know, I like this expression too. Um, it's actually pretty stupid. Uh, but, and, and, you know, there are things that just genuinely don't understand. Like, you know, I, I have exchanges with some of them on Twitter sometimes. And so there's this woman, for instance, who is the, who got the gold medal of the INSEM, which is France's uh, leading medical research institution. So she's an epidemiologist, but she doesn't specialize in modeling. And that shows... Uh, when you talk to her, and you know, there's really some basic math, some basic logic that she just doesn't get. You know, I mean, it, at first I was like, that's not possible. She surely she can understand this, but no, she really doesn't. You know, like it's, and I think there are quite a few people like this, uh, especially you know, in the among so-called public health experts. Now, if you look at epidemiologists, I think it's a more interesting case because I think that those guys are typically smarter. So, for instance, they, those guys are pretty good at statistics. You know, they understand they understand this stuff pretty well. Um, I think here it's more like, uh, you know, I, I was talking, you know, I did a podcast like with uh, uh, Richard Ananya for, for CSPI uh, a few weeks ago. And I, I, I was describing, I was talking about how I think that um, scientists are much more like craftsmen than we and them, they like to admit. And what I mean by that is that basically when you become a scientist, you learn a bunch of recipes, mm -hmm. you know, just like a craftsman learn a bunch of recipe, you know, how to make a sword. You know, I mean, I guess we don't have craftsmen that make sword anymore, but... Um, we should. You know, yeah. whatever, plumber or whatever, you know, you, you learn a bunch of techniques. Like I call that, in the, in the context of science, I call that scripts. Like, you know, in, there, in each, each field has its scripts. And, and so you learn scripts and then, you know, whenever you write a paper, you're going to follow a script, you know, it's going to have the same basic formats. You're going to have, use the same basic technique and you go, you just go through the motion. And so people go through the motion, they produce those papers. Um, and often those papers are going to rest on completely implausible assumptions, use totally unreliable uh, methods. And if you talk to those guys, you know, if you, if you push them around, they will admit this. You know? They will say, oh, yeah, sure, they will acknowledge the points you're making. You know, they will acknowledge, oh, yeah, sure, this assumption is probably completely false. But this method here, this context, yeah, no, we have no reason to think it's reliable at all. 
they, they will acknowledge this stuff. But it doesn't really matter because by following those scripts, they can still push, you know, publish those papers. And so their incentives, you know, they have to publish papers. It's publish or perish. Uh, they have to publish those papers. And, and by following those scripts more or less blindly, they can get those papers out there and it's good for their career. And so they don't really think hard about, you know, like, so typically, you know, for, for instance, I'm, as I was saying, I'm going to write a paper, I'm going to publish a paper soon about Delta's uh, transmit, transmissibility advantage. And, and you look at how they estimate this. So, you know, I'm not denying that it has a transmissibility advantage. I just think it has been widely exaggerated in that the evidence that is adduced uh, in favor of, in support of claims like, you know, Delta is twice as, more than twice as transmissible, transmissible as the original strain, and it has the same uh, basic reproduction number as chickenpox and that sort of thing. I think this is completely nuts, and the evidence that is adduced for those claims just doesn't support them at all. Well, now, you know, I assume you know where the chickenpox claim came from. Yeah, yeah, it's the CDC, and, and you know, but like, yeah, but you know where the CDC yeah, got it from? Uh, I don't know where the chickenpox comparison specifically came from, but I know where the calculation of the basic reproduction number comes from. Yeah, yeah. The, so the CD, this is interesting because the CDC, they put out that, that statement. They had grabbed a graphic from a random New York Times article that had the reproduction number for chickenpox uh, that was wrong. <laughs> uh, and so that's that's where they got that number from. So, but the thing, you know, the interesting thing. So I've I've read. Uh, I didn't know this story. I've read. I've read stories that were criticizing the claim on the ground that you know, actually, the 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 basic reproduction number of Delta is only somewhere between six and eight, whereas you know, chickenpox is more like nine. So you know, that claim is false. But you know, my the claim I'm making is more radical than this. Mm-hmm. Like what I'm saying is Delta's basic reproduction number is not between six and or and eight. It's just not. When you look at the evidence that's that's used to, um, you know, estimate that this is what the basic reproduction, the, the 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 evidence and also the the inferences are making to reach that conclusion, to reach the conclusion that the basic reproduction number is between six and eight, uh, it just doesn't support the claim. And so, but to come back to your question, you know, about how come epidemiologists say those things, you know, those silly things, in what's the explanation? In that case, I don't think, for the most part, it's because they're stupid. Uh, but if you, if you look, if you read the papers in the literature on, for instance, Delta's transmissibility advantage, you see they're full of caveats that show that they understand the things I'm going to explain in my forthcoming piece about this. They understand that stuff. They understand the limitations of their analysis and why we really shouldn't take at face value those estimates and plug them into the models you use to make projections about the the, the pandemic, uh, they understand that stuff, but it's just, it doesn't matter to them because in terms of like the incentives, once they have made their those caveats, so they have to make those caveats in the scientific papers they publish about this because otherwise they won't get published. That's part of the script. You have to make those right. caveats. But then it doesn't matter. They can Once they have made those caveats, they just go on happily to ignore them and they take those estimates and plug them into their models for projections. Of course, their models are always completely and massively off, but who cares? Nobody's going to call them out for this. So the next time around, they're going to do the same thing. And so I think it's a matter of incentives, and I think it's a matter of how 
scientists are trained. And again, they're trained to be a lot more like craftsmen following a script, a recipe, if you will, than we and they care to admit. And so, as in this example, you know, all that matters that you you make a few more or less obscure caveats, you know, that show that you understand that, you know, you really shouldn't be interpreting those data, take them at face value, but then they go on to take those estimates at face value, you know, because when they, when they talk to decision makers, when they uh, give advice for decision makers, you know, because decision makers, they read this kind of caveats. It's good. They're not even going to register. It's not going to, they're not even going to register. Right. Uh, and epidemiologists know that, or at least should know that. They just don't care because, again, they're. It's not. They don't have to care. Basically, that's that's the reason. So I I don't think in that case I wouldn't say. I mean, you, you have some stupid ones, you know, but um, for the most part, I think they're pretty smart and they understand that stuff. Again, you can see it by the caveats they put in the paper that they show that it's not always conceptually very clear. I think they're not. There are some distinction that they make, like. That are in their head, like kind of vaguely, but but they understand basically they understand this stuff, but they don't have to they don't have to take those caveats very seriously in practice when they talk to decision makers or when they uh, talk to the general public about that stuff, uh, and and they also you know uh, again it's not a matter of like them being part of a conspiracy to keep those restrictions, you know, to keep people, control the population, etc. But, you know, as you were saying before, it's good for them in a sense that it keep them in the limelight. So if they make crazy, if they make really pessimistic claims, it's 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 a way of grabbing headlines and, you know, it's going to uh, get more attention on their work than if you just say some, you know, because if, if they told the truth and said, oh, we have no idea, you know, yeah, they would say basically... In the case, to, to keep stay with that example of Delta's transmissibility advantage, they would say, yeah, Delta is probably more transmissible than the original strain or even the previous strain that were probably somewhat more transmissible than the original strain. But we have absolutely no clue how much more transmissible it is. Like, if they, you know, if they said that, they would say something that's actually accurate. But of course, nobody, you know, you wouldn't get the New York Times or Washington Post wouldn't be making headlines with that stuff. That's not what they're saying. Yeah, I did. Uh, you know, I remember the other day, just a couple of days ago, reading an article about some modeling in Australia, and you had two competing models about what would happen if, uh, if uh, like restrictions were lifted when Australia had a eighty percent adult vaccination rate, and one of the models said if you do that, there would be about uh, 1,500 additional uh, COVID deaths. And the other said, actually, if you did that, there would be 25,000 additional COVID deaths, which is, I guess, would be the equivalent of uh, 300,000 US per capita. Um, and, you know, they were going back and forth about the different assumptions that led to the two, uh, you know, very, very different conclusions you could argue about it one way or the other, but not, neither of the assumptions seemed crazy, you know, that either model was using. So what, I mean, there, there is, I think, and this has been a, an issue throughout the pandemic. Um, 
that I don't think has really been thought about is that, you know, at first, uh, when you're trying to deal with a pandemic, you don't really have a lot of data. You don't really have a lot of, you know, uh, uh, good knowledge about information about what's going on. And then, uh, but, but you have to, you have to make decisions, right? What are we going to do about it? Even though we don't have the information that we'd like. And now, of course, even after a year, 18 months, uh, we still don't have a lot of information or explanation for a lot of what's happening, what's going on with even some of these basic things like the reproductive number of these variants. So how, how do we make decisions, you know, how does the government or whoever or individuals make decisions about how they should respond to this, given that uncertainty? That seems like an important question that hasn't gotten a lot of focus. So I have several points I want to make on this. I mean, the, the first one is that the truth about this is that it's impossible to predict with any accuracy, you know, the number of well, what's going to happen if you do this or that. You know? and, like, and, and anyone who claims they can do that is a charlatan. You know, maybe they're trying to fool you or maybe they're fooling themselves, but what is certain is that it's just false. They can't do this. And... And those projections, I mean, they're, some of it is just like it's, it's clownish stuff. I mean, like, you know, in France, for instance, um, like back in April or even May or even now, actually, they're still doing this. The epidemiologists are advised the French government, you know, that, that give them projections to guide policy. Uh, in their models to... Um, uh, you know, to the, the models they used to make those projections, they were assuming that alpha had the transmissibility advantage of uh, 60% over the original strain of the virus. No, back in April, when they put out those projections, the measure transmission advantage, there is a distinction between transmissibility and advantage and transmission advantage that I won't get into here, but I will explain in my forthcoming piece about this. Uh, but anyway, there was a, the measure transmission advantage of alpha at that point in France was somewhere between 0% and 10%, depending on the assumptions you make. But they didn't care. You know, they would just put those, um, uh, those estimates from the early expansion of the lineage in their models, and then they would have like those apocalyptic, apocalyptic predictions that, of course, massively failed. Um, uh, but, you know, there's something more fundamental. You know, it's, it's not just that they overestimated uh, the, the transmissibility advantage of, of the alpha variant, uh, just as I think they're doing now with the delta variant. I think there's something more fundamental. It's just like uh, those, you have to understand that those models that they're using are completely unrealistic, and they're completely unrealistic in a way that make it impossible to use them to predict the how the the epidemic is going to uh, is going to unfold, you know. And but there, but of course, you know, this is not something that anyone wants to hear. Decision makers don't want to hear that because, as you said, they have to make decisions. That's why they're called decision makers. Uh, and so they want some sort of they want to be able to say that they are based their decisions are based on science, even if the science is complete bullshit. Uh, the media, of course, doesn't want to hear that either because uh, if you you know it's it's hard to make headlines and clickbaits if what you say is that, oh, we don't know anything about what's going to happen. Um, uh, 
But though, like you know, and there are many reasons for this. I think one big reason is that those models uh, they don't model complex population structure. So basically, what those models are doing, they're assuming that any person in the population is just as likely to infect anyone else in the population once they're infected. They're just as likely to infect any other person in the population. Or it's not exactly true because typically they stratify by age group. So what they're saying is that if you're, um, so you know, if you're in your 30s like me, uh, basically what they're saying is that at least in my region, I'm just as likely, if I'm infected, I'm just as likely to infect any other person who is also in his 30s, in, who lives in the same region as me. We're talking about like 10 million, you know, millions of people. So of course this is false. You know? Like most people in my age group, even those who live in the same region as me, are people I will never have, that I have no way of reaching by a, a chain of contacts. You know? It's just never going to happen, you know. So, and I think uh, I've been doing some work, you know, trying to see what happens when you model complex population structure and how it affects uh, the results of uh, 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 transmission models that I will present, you know, in, in a few weeks uh, when, when I've uh, done a write-up. But, you know, what I'm saying, basically, like, I don't need to get into all those details, um, but basically, uh, we don't, you know, the models they're using are not capable of producing, of, of making accurate predictions, and no model, we, we don't, you know, we don't have the data we need to to make projections that are actually accurate. But, but you know, for the reasons I said, nobody wants to admit this. Everybody has different reasons not to want to, to admit this, but that, that's how it is. So the, the real situation is that um, we don't know. You know, we, we, we have no way to accurately predict what's going to happen. If you take the example you were talking about, what's going to happen when uh, Australia opens up again, uh, if they have, say, uh, if, they're 80%, if their vaccination rate is 80%, nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. But so the second point I want to make is that you don't need to know to, to make decisions. It's like, so, you know, I wrote against lockdowns and my argument was not that I could predict what could happen depending on whether you had such and such restrictions in place. My argument was that even though you can't predict what the, even though you can't really accurately estimate the effects of different uh, policies, you can, uh, you, you can get a very, very broad, uh, uh, upper bound on how much, you know, in that case, how much uh, people would die if uh, you didn't have a lockdown. And my point is that um, if you do a, a, a basic cost-benefit analysis, uh, even when you take the that upper bound on the amount of damage that not having a lockdown would do, the, um, the cost on well-being of the restrictions so far outweigh uh, this damage that it's a no-brainer. You don't even have so you know, it, it's not a problem that you can't accurately estimate the effect of various restrictions, which you can't. Because any plausible effect they have, even if it's very, very large, much larger than is actually plausible. So, you know, I'm talking, in fact, beyond the plausible uh, possibility you're going to come up with the conclusion that you shouldn't do that stuff. So I, I um, and, and, well, and so I don't think, you know, the, the point I'm trying to make here is just that, uh, you know, 
convoluted way. I'm sorry, but it's just that um, you're you're a philosopher you, 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 and you're you, French, so you know. You don't you don't need you don't need to be able to accurately predict what's going to happen in different scenarios to make decisions, which is good because we can't predict accurately what's going to happen in different scenarios. Uh, okay, but so well, this is a, this is interesting because. Uh, you know, you said that you had written against lockdowns, but you also wrote in favor of lockdowns before that, right? So yeah. at a certain point, you did think that uh, the potential, at least the potential cost to human life or uh, other stuff uh, could justify these, these measures, right? So I, I don't know, like what... Um, like what what do you think what do you think changed there in your yes yeah, so so what what happens is this basically i was you're right i was in favor of lockdowns uh in in march you know, of 2020 basically and even at the beginning of april uh and my reasoning was just i was just starting to learn about you know epidemiology of infectious diseases like everyone who wasn't uh, an epidemiologist of infectious diseases which is most people um and so I was just going from the standard, like, you know, SEER model or, you know, the different variants, but it's basically the same for, for our purposes here. Uh, and if you take this model uh, with like a, a virus that had the characteristics that uh, SARS-CoV-2 seemed to have at the time, and frankly, that this has been largely confirmed. So I'm mostly talking about the basic reproduction number, uh, which at the time was estimated to be about 2.5, but now it's believed to be a little bit more, maybe, but well, it doesn't really matter. If you, if you have a virus of those characteristics, you take one of those basic transmission models, what you're getting is that in a matter of a few weeks, you have the overwhelming majority of the population that's been infected. And, you know, since we estimated the, the infection fatality rate at around 1% at the time, which, you know, again, was probably a little bit more than what it actually is, but not too far off. Uh, you ended up with so many deaths that it made sense to uh, lock down to flatten the curve. You know, well, you, the point was that you were always going to get this this amount of death, um, but uh, but this is the amount of deaths you would get without taking into account hospital saturation. But if you have so many people getting infected in such a short amount of time, then hospitals were going to get completely overwhelmed. And the infection fatality rate would actually be much higher than one percent. Right. And so at that point, when you when you use when you use those models and you take into account, you make some reasonable assumptions about the effects of hospital saturation, you get a, a, a possible death toll that is so high that it actually makes sense to to lock down to as we said at the time, but then everybody forgot this rationale after that, uh, flatten the curve. And the reason I changed my mind is because. After that, I realized that the way we model transmission was basically wrong. You know? and, and even places that didn't lock down, like Sweden in Europe during the first wave, and then you know, many U.S. states and, and many other countries later on, uh, they, they came nowhere near. You know, the epidemic receded long before they had reached the so-called herd immunity threshold. And this told me that there was something very wrong about the way we model transmission. So, you know, there are many things that are wrong. I, uh, you know, initially I was talking a lot about, and I still think that this is important, the fact that those models didn't include 
uh, the effect of voluntary behavior change. So people change their behaviors uh, in response to changes in epidemic conditions. So, you know, basically as hospitalizations, cases and deaths rise, uh, people get scared. And so they don't see, they don't throw parties with their friends at home as often as before. And it just like reduces transmission. Uh, but as I just mentioned, you know, more recently as I've been investigating the effect of population structure. And I, I think it's a huge factor too. But whatever the reason, you know, I wasn't clear on the reason at first. Whatever the reason it was, what was clear is that the way we're modeling transmission was wrong. And and the virus, even in the absence of very stringent restrictions, isn't spreading as fast as those standard models uh, predicted it would. And so once you see this, you start getting more data, uh, you see that uh, there is no clear differences between places that had very stringent restrictions in place and, and places that didn't. And so my argument is not that restrictions have no effect whatsoever. When I was looking at the data, I was like, look, I think it's impossible to accurately, precisely estimate the effect they had. But whatever the real effect is, it can't be huge. Because if it were huge, it would be easier to detect in the data. And it's really hard to detect in the data. And then, you know, the rest of the second part of my reasoning was like, okay, those restrictions, they clearly don't have a huge effect on, on the, the number of people who get infected and die, uh, you know, infected by, by the virus. Uh, but they have a huge effect. At least some of them have, have a huge effect on people's well-being. You know, in France, we've been for six months, we've been under a curfew where we had to we were forced to stay at home after 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. It depended on the period, but like this lasted for months. Yeah. And this has a huge, this had a huge effect on people's well-being. And you know, I just did a back of the envelope uh, cost-benefit calculation, and I was like, even if I assume that a lockdown would, that even if I assume, in fact, that a lockdown would have prevented all the death that 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 happened, it still well, wouldn't begin. The, the lockdown can prevent the deaths that happened, right? So it's a question. Yeah, yeah, but I so I I, I looked at uh, I looked at you know yeah I, I, like I, I used the example of Sweden because yeah. Sweden didn't lock down, and I was like, let's suppose that Sweden could have by locked by by locking down, Sweden could have avoided all the deaths that actually ha- uh, happened in in Sweden, and then I do a back of the envelope calculation based on the. Um, uh, well, you know, what I do rather, I don't actually do this. What I do is I say, like, I, I assume that a lockdown would have prevented all the death in Sweden right. that actually happened without a lockdown. And then I ask, okay, what's the maximum reduction of well-being that the restrictions that a lockdown could have had and still pass a cost-benefit test? And what I find is that it's like something like 1%, which is ridiculous. You know? Like, it's like you have to assume that Compared to a situation where you can go to restaurants, you can go to bars, you are, you're not under curfew, you can still go see your friends if you want, you can go outside after 6 p.m. if you want, etc. Compared to a situation where you can't do all of those things, your well-being would only be reduced, would be reduced by less than 1%. Yeah. And that's the only way a lockdown would pass a cost-benefit test. So basically, you have to assume that a lockdown would have literally resuscitated people for it to pass a cost-benefit test, and I don't believe that lockdown resuscitate people. Yeah, so I guess I there, I have two, I think there's two issues that potentially with that. One is that if you say, 
you know, and I, I think that uh, I think that you're right that if you at least if you look at lockdowns as they were implemented in Europe and uh, North America and the United States, it's it's hard to find uh, big differences depending on this, the, the stringency and whatever. And as you noted, one of the big reasons for that is that people uh, like kind of even if you don't have a formal lockdown or formal restrictions, when the virus, you know, when you have a big surge and the hospitals are filling up and people are dying, people kind of behave already like like they already stay home. They already do uh, don't do the things that the lockdown would prohibit them from doing. So that does it does seem to me like the uh, that means that the benefit of the lockdown is a lot less than you might think. But also the cost of the lockdown is a lot less because people you're prohibiting people from doing things that they largely would not have done anyway or wanted to do anyway. Um, the other. So I'll let you. Can I, can I reply to this one? First? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I, I get this objection a lot, and no. I, I, and you know, and I think the problem with this objection is that, yeah, sure, you know, and I am arguing. You're right. I myself am arguing that even in the absence of a lockdown, people modify their behaviors in way that have a very similar effect on transmission as a lockdown would have. That's that's my own argument. And so, yeah, your objection is that, well, you know, if it has a similar effect on transmission, if people change their behavior, um, then the cost would also be very similar to a lockdown. But it doesn't follow because the fact that, from the fact that it has a very similar, that people changes their beha- change their behaviors in, way, in ways that have a similar effect on transmission, it doesn't follow that they change their behavior in the same ways that they would under a lockdown. So, if, you know, it's all about... The thing is that a lockdown prevents people from doing a lot more things than the things they wouldn't, they would on their own decide not to do in the absence of a lockdown. Like, for instance, if you if you look at France, um, yeah, sure, maybe a lot of people would not throw parties at night, you know, in the evening with their friends, even if they weren't a lockdown. But they would still, you know, uh, go have a drink or beer at a terrace, you know, go uh, walk, have a walk, you know, at night and that sort of things, you know, or even go with their friends. They would just still do it, but do it less often, etc. So you have to, you know, my point is that like lockdowns, they change behaviors uh, way more and in different ways than people would do spontaneously, voluntarily in the absence of a lockdown. And so the question becomes, how much bang for your buck does this buy you? How much does this extra change in behavior or different change of behavior caused by lockdown? Uh, how much does it buy you in terms? Does it buy you in terms of reduction of transmission? And I think the evidence is not that much. Right. Uh, right. Okay. So you know, that's, so that's my response to this to this argument. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So people, it, uh, the lockdown uh, uh, could be a lot broader. It could it could end up restricting a lot of things that don't really affect transmission. Yes. And that people. Absent the lockdown, would still do okay. So the and, and I think it's not just that it could. You know, I think we have like overwhelming evidence that this is this is what happens. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. I I but maybe maybe. Uh, so the other the you know the other uh, issue or question that I have is so most of you know if you look at um, if you look at uh, the United States and Europe, um, most of Europe. Uh, 
lockdowns restrictions there seem to be about you know you use the the phrase like flattening the curve right so managing the virus keeping protecting hospital capacity those sorts of things um you do have a you know there were a small number of countries uh who their philosophy of lockdown was you try and get uh to covid zero and then once you have covid zero you can reopen everything. You can have like border restrictions or, you know, maybe some other things, but you can mainly go back to closer to normal than, uh, and people will, will act closer to normal uh, than they would if the virus was still circulating at a, at a lower level and people were still scared of it. So it seems to me that you, I know that you have some skepticism and there are arguments about, well, how effective are these, um, you know, these strategies, although it does seem to be the case that uh, there are countries that where it, they they did them and then the goal was achieved. Um, but to, it does seem to me that uh, in that situation, you could end up a place where the lockdowns result in higher well-being, because instead of having 18 months of living in a kind of gray zone where Things, you know, things are open, but people don't really want to go out and people are getting sick. And, you know, uh, like I went, uh, I, you know, last summer I would try and take my kids to uh, playgrounds because I didn't think that I still don't think that COVID is a big danger to kids. But uh, they would just be empty, you know, and a playground, it turns out, is is not that much fun, you know, if, if you're the only person that if you're the only kid there. Um, whereas if you had a situation where people were confident, okay, there is no COVID circulating, you could end up with higher well-being, right? So that, that would be the counter the, uh, or the issue that I would raise there. I'll let you respond to that. Yes, yes. So I also hear this objection. So I, I have several things to say about this. First of all, um, I don't think the evidence is very good that lockdowns specifically are responsible for, because we're talking about Australia and New Zealand here, right? uh, well, maybe China, but. But China is a different story because their lockdowns are just a whole different kettle no, of fish. Okay, so... Uh, let, and I don't, you know, let, I, I don't think you could do this. Uh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, yeah, I just want to pause and flag that you can come back because, uh, I, you know, I, I do think it's true that, that uh, you know, the China, China lockdown uh, was very severe. People could argue about whether you could do that in another country, but... You know, to the question of like whether it can work or not, I don't think you can dismiss that as an example. All right, so go go, go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, actually, even in the case of, of China, I think people assume. So, you know, again, I have several things. Well, let, let's, I have several things to say about all this. So uh, let's take them in order. Um, so, um, so first of all, we have those countries. So let's include China, uh, because I don't think it's, uh, I think it's the same thing I mean, for different reasons, but. Um, we have those countries that have used lockdown. So it's New Zealand, Australia, and China, basically, because, you know, there are other, like, so-called zero-COVID countries, but those countries haven't locked down. And, like, often people forget that, you know, just cite those countries as examples of what you should lock down. And I'm like, but they haven't locked down. So what are you talking about? Um, but, okay, the first point I want to make is that I don't think the evidence is that good that lockdowns were responsible for what happened uh, in those countries. And, and that includes China, by the way. So let's start with um, Australia and New Zealand. So especially Australia, because in New Zealand, there was never that much of an outbreak. So um, at least maybe at the very beginning, uh, but Australia has had several more. So that's, I think it's more interesting. Uh, 
and it, and it looks, you know, it looks as though the lockdowns over there were effective because they've had those outbreaks, but they were relatively small and they were able to push back incidents toward toward zero or in fact to zero for a long period of time. And, and you know, as you said, you know, it looks at in those cases the uh, effect, the overall effect, you know, the, those do pass a cost benefit test. So my first thing is that, yeah, I don't think the evidence favor the effectiveness is very good that those lockdowns, even those lockdowns were actually effective. So people, you know, people forget that the theory of lockdown, it's not just that in a country, if you have a lockdown, it will, uh, you will have less infection and less death. Uh, it's supposed to be that when the lockdown is implemented, it reduces immediately or almost immediately transmission because people have less contacts. And so, so the, my point is that if the lockdown is doing, is the thing doing the causal work here, you should see a change in the trend of the effective reproduction number around the time or just immediately or just after the lockdown is, comes into effect. But even in Australia, you don't see that. If you actually, which nobody does that, you know, just plot the effective reproduction number in, say, Melbourne, you know, during the, the and uh, summer you... 2020 lockdown, you see no change in the trend of the effective reproduction number. So you see, you, you know, is, there's no clear change uh, uh, that can be, I'm not even saying, like, you know, causally attributed, you know, like, I'm not even saying you see a correlation, and the question is, is it causal? No, I'm saying, if you look at the time around which it's implemented, you don't see a change in the trend. What you see is that the same downward trend that was happening before uh, uh, continues, but we've seen that this exactly the same thing in many places without lockdown. So why do people assume it's the lockdown? I think another hypothesis, which I think is actually more plausible. So again, I'm not saying the lockdown has no effect whatsoever. What I'm saying here is that I don't think the evidence is very good that it was a decisive factor. I think it's actually much more plausible than in the case of Australia and New Zealand. It was border closure. That, that, that did the work. Uh, what I'm thinking is happening increasingly is that uh, they have very little seeding because they've closed their borders. Right. So those seeds infect some networks and then the virus rips through those networks. But because there is not more seeding, and you know, this is probably helped by the lockdown. Again, I'm not saying it has zero effect. Um, uh, once it's done ripping through this network, it just goes down. And that's why you don't see any clear effects if you plot, you know, the effective reproduction number and you, you draw a line where the lockdowns are, are implemented, you don't really see any of it. So that's, that's one thing, you know, in the, and even in the case of China. So people say that uh, it was the lockdown. I'm like, yeah, maybe it was the lockdown. It's certainly more plausible than in many other places because the lockdown was extremely stringent over there. It's kind of crazy in many ways, but... So surely it's more plausible over there than in some other places. But even even in China, I think people are too quick to assume that the lockdown was doing the job because we've seen similar reduction in, uh, you know, we've seen the epidemic receding elsewhere in, in, in East Asia and Southeast Asia in other places, and they didn't have a lockdown. And so people, you know, people about South Korea, they're like, oh, that's because they had this amazing contact tracing. And I'm like, Okay, maybe in the case of South Korea, it's plausible. You know, I can maybe buy this. But then they're saying the same thing about Thailand or, you know, Myanmar, where they had a fucking coup, you know, like, a, and, you know, it's like it, it doesn't pass even a basic spell test. You know, like Thailand is like the GDP per capita of Thailand is like, like 30 times 
like one thirty of of that of Germany. I'm supposed to believe that those guys have some super effective like contact tracing infrastructure in place that can do what Germany can do. I mean, yeah, I don't buy it. So my point here, why am I talking about Thailand? We're talking about China. My point is that since this happened in Thailand and there was no lockdown, why do you automatically assume that in China it was a lockdown? But anyway, let's assume that the lockdowns in those places was actually effective. Uh, I don't think, I think one thing we can probably agree on is that even if the lockdown did the bulk of the work, uh, I still think that border closure was a necessary condition for this to work. And uh, and I don't think, so that's something I've argued before in my case against lockdowns, I don't think that uh, in Europe or in the US you, you could have pulled this off, uh, certainly not in Europe, if only because of the coordination problem. So Europe is a very tightly integrated a zone, you know, for, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot, a lot more than with Australia and New Zealand of, of travel between European countries for economic, cultural, family reasons, etc. And, and so it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been possible, um, you know, you, you, what you could have done is that once you had, if, if at some point, so uh, I'll come back to this, but like, you know, like in the summer of 2020, we were almost at zero incidence almost everywhere in Europe. If we had closed the external borders, maybe, you know, you could argue maybe that you could have left the internal borders open as long as the external borders were closed and, you know, we could have pulled it off. Um, I mean, I, honestly, I think even in that case, I, I'm skeptical that it would have worked. But, uh, but the thing is that we didn't do it anyway. So my argument was that, look, um, okay, maybe you want to argue that we could have pulled it off in, in the summer of 2020. I think the coordination problem alone would have been very difficult. You would have had to have like dozens of countries agree on coordinating their uh, uh, border policy at the same time. You know, like it's it's, it's very difficult. You know, and I don't think it was possible. Uh, but let let's assume it was possible. Uh, once you have incidents everywhere, that's like uh, above you know like two hundred cases per uh, one hundred thousand. You know, like we're talking. You know, there's no point in right. In talking about this, because you already like th- th- that's that ship has already sailed, you know, at this point. So, um, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, again, I don't, I don't believe we could have pulled it off even in the summer of 2020 because I think it's just much more difficult for various reasons. For but a lot of it has to do with the coordination problem, not just that. There's just much more travel within the U.S. between states, and you know, you have a similar coordination problem between states, right? Uh, and in Europe between countries. So I think it was just objectively much more difficult to pull it off than in Australia and New Zealand, say, or, or China. Uh, uh, and, um, and uh, you know, and like South Korea is basically an island because it's northern border, like land borders, like North Korea. UK, maybe. Uh, yeah. So, you know, but, but let's agree that we could have pulled it off in, in 2000, summer 2020. You know, it, it's just... Okay, whatever. We didn't do it. So what's the point of talking about this once, you know, incidence is so high that, uh, you know, like people have those ridiculous models, the same I was criticizing before, saying, oh, you know, we just need to do a lockdown for four weeks uh, and then you know, we can get to zero. And then the, the, the our amazing contact tracing, which I worked so well before, uh, is going to take, you know, pick up the mantle, you know, like and, and ensure we stay at zero. You know, yeah, this is just complete fantasy. You know, like it's a, like uh, yeah, again, I don't, I don't believe we could ever have pulled it off, but 
in any case, you know, we just didn't do it. And once we didn't do it and incidence was, was high, you know, that was just like, we're just never going to happen. So I don't see the point of, of, of bringing that up. Well, once you know, yeah, too late. Uh, so I think, um, I, I do see the point in bringing it up since I did bring it up, uh, <laughs> for, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, I do, I do agree with you. There was a uh, particularly an almost uh, groundhog day like uh, element to some of the subsequent lockdowns where it wasn't even, you know, the, 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 the like two weeks or four weeks to slow the spread or whatever. Uh, it, you know, it was not even that they were saying, okay, well this time we've learned our lesson and we're going to aim for COVID zero. Uh, it was, you know, some fantasy about, you know, your test and trace program that, that was not going to happen. So I totally agree with that. I also think, you know, looking back, uh, I do think that one of the big lessons is uh, that uh, border closures are an underrated pandemic mitigation measure. And uh, or the earlier, the better. It does help if you were an island, right? Uh, maybe the UK uh, could have looked at that. I don't know. But even even in the U.S., it seems to me, if you look at where the cases that uh, you know, all, all pretty much all like all of the like lineage cases, it seems to me in the U.S. came through Europe, not through Asia and China, and maybe that has something to do with the fact that we shut down travel from China, but did not have border controls for other countries. But it does, you know, uh, I don't. Hopefully, we won't be dealing with. Uh, too many future uh, pandemics uh, in the near future, but we might. And so, you know, I think it is useful to try and figure out, okay, what, what, yeah. What yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I see the point, but actually it reminds me that there was a one last point I wanted to make in response to your, uh, you know, objection slash question about, uh, you know, the, those zero COVID countries and how, you know, in, in certain circumstances, lockdown may actually pass a cost benefit test. And so, uh, Sure, you know, so like I said, I, you know, I, I think, you know, to, to just react to what you just said, I mean, you have to take into account, though, that it's much harder for the U.S. to close its borders completely than for Australia and New Zealand because, you you know, you have a lot more traffic, you, your economy, your, you know, cultural life, everything, you'd have a lot more, uh, depends on it a lot more than, than uh, other countries. I think, you know, uh, you have to take that into account. But, but another, we had a, I think, a wall at the southern border, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, but another another point I want to make is that, sure, so, you know, my point is I don't think that Europe or, or the U.S. could have replicated what New Zealand or China or, or Australia did um, anyway. And I think that even if they could have, by the point we're having this debate, you know, in Europe we were having this debate a lot at the beginning of, of, of 2021, uh, that, that ship had already sailed. But another thing I want to say is that let's suppose for the sake of the argument that all that is not true, that in fact, if we had done a swift, stringent four-week lockdown at the beginning of 2021, we would have been able to brought the incidence to zero and keep it there thanks to the magic of contact tracing. Um, even if you assume this, you know, I, I still don't think that, so I, I don't think that Australia and New Zealand made the right choice. And I, I don't think China made the right choice because I'm, I'm curious. I'm actually very curious to see how the Chinese are going to, what the Chinese are going to do now. Uh, but uh, in the case of New Zealand and Australia, I think we'll come to revise or uh, 
judgments on how good their strategy has been over time. So I do, to be clear, I do not doubt that even when all is said and done, they will have had considerably less death per capita than most other Western countries. I do not doubt that. So that's not what I'm questioning. But the, I think the problem they're going to have is that for a year and a half now, they have um, uh, pushed this idea that of zero tolerance for cases. Like they're going to have to, uh, that, you know, any case is intolerable. You know, another saying it's intolerable as long as you've reached a sufficient prevalence of vaccination, you know, sufficient vaccination rate that keeps like creeping up. Um, which is what this study is. You know, I've read the article about this study. I haven't read the study yet, but I've read an article in Gordon about it. Someone sent it to me. Uh, is about, you know, um, in Australia. What would happen? You know, even with 80%, we'd have 25,000 deaths. So, oh, it, has, it better has to be, it better be like 90% or something. Right, right, right. Uh, I think the problem we're going to have is that, and, and this goes back to my most recent article that we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, about the transition of SARS-CoV-2 toward endemicity, um, because the virus is going to become endemic everywhere, at some point, they're going to have to let it in. And, and when they do, they will ha- there will be waves over there. Like, and, and I fear that the problem they're going to have is that because they have, for one year and a half now, they have told people that, waves were just intolerable. They're, like, they're going to happen. And people are going to freak out. And they're going to... And I think it will take them much... My point is that I think it will take them much longer to go back to normal. Because when they... Yeah, so far, they've been doing fairly good. Although I would argue that this is not true about Australia. I mean, in, in Australia, they've had, like, some pretty terrible lockdowns. Like, but in New Zealand, yes, yeah, certainly, I think I would argue that this is true. But when they open up again, which they will have to, and the virus... Uh, and they let the virus in, which they will have to because, again, it will become endemic everywhere. And that will include eventually Australia and New Zealand and China. Right. Uh, and- they're going to have a problem. You know, in China, it may be easier because it's a dictatorship. So, you know, they can just tell people what to do. Although even that is an exaggeration. You know, even in China, the government has to respond to public opinion. Uh, it's just like much easier than in a democracy. But in New Zealand and Australia, I think that's... Uh, I think that the pandemic is going to, and by the pandemic, I mean just um, this uh, extraordinary period that Doug was talking about earlier, you know, how they're governed and, uh, uh, you know, being under constant threat of new restrictions, etc. I think it's going to drag on a lot longer than in other places. You know, maybe I'm wrong. We'll see. But I think that... uh, you know, I think that uh, we'll come to revise our judgments uh, about how well they're doing. I mean, you know, with some of the things that's going on in Australia right now is completely insane. Uh, and I think that this will, you know, we're, we're going to revise our judgment about, about their strategy. So I don't think the lesson, you know, and my point is that I, I really don't think the lesson is that for future pandemics, which hopefully will be, you know, as, as far away in time as possible, but... Uh, there are reasons to believe those things are going to become more common unfortunately, because we're more and more encroaching on the natural habitats of species that carry viruses that, that could infect humans, etc. Um, but I, you know, I don't think the lesson for future pandemics is that uh, we should uh, we should close borders, 
because you know it's nice to close borders, but eventually you have to open them. And first of all, uh, it's not clear that the next time around we'll have a vaccine as quickly as we've had this time. Well, that's true. That's Although, one thing. Uh, I mean, I will say uh, you're 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 quite possibly right. However, uh, at least in this case, we could have had the vaccine a lot earlier than we did. I I think that's you know one of the pieces of the puzzle that I would like to see addressed is okay. You know, if we have another pandemic, how can we make it? I mean, I understand that to a lot of people, uh, nine months, you know, like, wow, that's that's an amazingly fast time for vaccine. But uh, I mean, we did it actually did take only two days to make the vaccine. And, uh, you know, the testing uh, uh, could have been a lot quicker. The the rollout could have been a lot quicker. Um, so. If I yeah, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is. I think you know. I, I think this take. I'm, I'm more skeptical of this take of, than many people. I, I often agree with um, on things. You know, if not the pandemic, it's other things. Uh, and and the reason is that sure. I mean, you know, there is a sense in which we could have had vaccines much faster. You know, it's physically it was physically possible. You know, we could have started mass production. Uh, way earlier, because as you said, it was it was designed. It was not made. But it was designed in a few days uh, back in February or even before. I don't remember exactly. I think it was February. Um, and uh, and so you know we could have manu- started manufacturing mass manufacturing them earlier. And, you know, in theory, uh, it, it was possible. But I think that this stake um, overlooks the fact that you know you have political realities to take into account and those are not going away like you know people you know you've seen you know uh, you know i agree that this is not this does not make sense from like a cost benefit perspective uh but the reality is that we're no longer in the 18th century where you could just like you know like jenner just like scratch some uh some piece of skin you know, where someone who had smallpox and just like put it on some kid and was like, let's see if this shit works, you know, like, and again, you're not going to well, do this. And, you I know, mean, and I'm not saying, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's a bit more, you know, we're not quite, it's, it's, it's become a little bit more sophisticated, but I mean, you're not going to mass distribute a vaccine that hasn't been, uh, that hasn't gone to at least, you know, phase one and phase two testing, you know, trials before, and you know, I'm not saying you know, I'm not saying it could have been faster. It could have been faster, but I think you know we should also be mindful of those political and psychological realities. And you know, a lot of people are really. I agree, it's weird. You know, those are people who do all sort of crazy stuff. You know, that's way more dangerous. I think, but 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 there's something about injecting something in their body that just like freak them out. And and. And I think well, this is not do, just, you, know, you could you could do a pill version if it's you know uh, but so I I, I, I totally understand uh, you know the point of so so you know let, let me just no. say you know it's so it, it's like yeah so that's one thing but I, I'm not saying you know, it couldn't have been faster but I I think you know we shouldn't overestimate how much faster it could have been I, I agree it could have been faster I, I think I think we shouldn't overestimate how much faster because you have those political realities to take into account but another thing again is that yeah. Uh, for various reasons, this vaccine was kind of low-hanging fruit, and we have no reason to think that it will be the same thing the next time around. Uh, 
that's one point. Another point is that even if it is the next thing, the same thing the next time around with the next pandemic, and you know we also have a fairly easy to to make va- uh, vaccine. Uh, low, it's, we have a low hanging fruit vaccine. Um, again, you know, I don't think that closing borders is is a good idea because I'm very, you know, as I was just explaining, I think that we're going to find out with New Zealand and Australia that this thing is going to drag on longer than other places because they, you know, uh, they have like this new mindset of like, you know, we can't tolerate any case and, you know, the virus is going to become endemic. And so it's going to happen. And this is going to happen through the next pandemic too. So, you know, if it's become a pandemic, it's already too late to eradicate it. Like, you know, it depends on the characteristic of the virus, but if it's anything like SARS-CoV-2, that's, that's going to be the case. And so, you know, maybe I'm wrong about this. We'll, we'll see, you know, in five years, we'll, we'll have another look at, you know, Australia and New Zealand and China. Or China, again, is different because there's dictatorships. So it makes things easier in some ways. But New Zealand and Australia, and, you know, we'll see if we, what we think then. But, like, right now, I'm very skeptical that, that even with the next pandemic, hopefully the next pandemic won't be in the next five years. So by, the, by then, you know, we can figure this out. But uh, right now, I'm pretty skeptical that, that border closure at the outset uh, are, are the right strategy because I think that this is not going to turn out so well for the countries that in this pandemic have done that. All right. Well, I, I will, I will make you this guarantee in five years. If, if this podcast is still going and we're all still alive, uh, not in jail, then, uh, you can come back and we can, we can, we can, uh, reevaluate the different, uh, strategies. 